Welcome to the Passive Investing Show, a show that teaches you how to take your hard-earned cash and have it work hard for you, regardless of whether or not you continue to work hard for it. And now, here are your hosts, Jay Scott and Ashley Wilson. Welcome to the Passive Investing Show. I'm Ashley Wilson, and I am joined with my co-host, Jay Scott. On today's episode, we had Grant Norwood from the Norwood Energy Corporation. So Grant had some really interesting, we had some really interesting discussions with Grant today. So he's all about oil and gas. And I know we've talked to uh, Mauricio Raul a few weeks ago, and he had some oil and gas strategies that he was investing in. He talked to us about leasing equipment. Um, But what Grant's company does is kind of more, they're, they're the ones that are going in and they're actually extracting the oil and the gas from these fields. And so in this episode, he talks all about the dual strategies that his company uh, uh, focuses on. Uh, one is, is buying existing fields that are already being drilled, going in and basically adding value to those fields uh, and improving the, the extraction and then on the other side, basically going in from scratch and and finding fields uh, that potentially have opportunity to be drilled and, and can make potentially tons of money. And so in this episode, he talks all about those two strategies. And he also talks about some deals that he not only has available, um, but just deals in the pipeline. So you get to learn about just all facets of oil and gas in this episode. Fantastic episode for anybody that's looking for an alternative uh, investment, especially in the energy sector. This is the show for you. So without any further ado, let's welcome Grant Norwood to the show. Grant, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you started Norwood Energy Corp? Yeah, I actually started out doing land and title, um, just kind of all on my own. I did a lot of 1099 work and stuff like that. And then as I started needing more help, I figured it's time to create a company and hire staff and actually open a storefront. Um, but yeah, land and title is an essential part in the oil and gas business. Without land and title, you don't have leases, therefore no drilling or production takes place. Um, so spending time there, I actually bought and sold quite a few interests and then wanted to expand. So I got into raising capital and funding bigger deals. It's quite a capital intensive industry. So, you know, in order to grow, uh, you decide whether you want to finance, go the private equity route or um, just bring in capital from accredited individuals and pursue your path that way. So I, I know we've talked to somebody else in the past that uh, that invests in the oil and gas world, but uh, I know how they did it was they were essentially um, leasing equipment to to drillers, and so they were making their money on the equipment side. Uh, it sounds like you guys do something a little bit differently. Can you talk a little bit about the types of investments um, that, that uh, you do in, at, at your company? Yeah. Um, so we do a little bit of drilling and uh, quite a bit of acquisitions. So we're on our fourth acquisition for this year. So that's basically we'll go in and uh, look at a producing field that's being offered to us, uh, see what the history has been on the field, what kind of upside remains, how much life is left in the field, and then really can we pick it up right. So if we can buy it right, we can work over the wells, we can improve the production, then we're going to see quite a decent return. Um, our other strategy is drilling. So, you know, drilling, it's a lot higher returns, but, you know, you every now and then you wind up 
coming up with nothing. So uh, you take a few on the chin, but there's quite a bit of tax benefits uh, when you're pursuing those strategies. So it all balances out. And with a little bit of staying power or kind of a diversified drilling plan, it actually reduces the risk quite a bit. So, you know, rarely will we ever go and just drill a single well in a program to where it's all dependent on that one. Um, But yeah, that's the main two strategies, uh, acquire and improve, kind of like in your real estate world, you know, you might have a value add play or kind of like a deferred maintenance play where, you know, it's been mismanaged or not enough capital infused. So it's kind of dwindling away. Well, oil and gas is like that uh, as well. So many of these uh, fields, they're designed where the owner operator is just taking money out. They're not putting any money back in. So they're not effectively uh, maintaining the property so that you're seeing production just slowly dwindle away. And there might be a ton of value left there. You just have to be able to put money back in in order to uh, release it. So, uh, and I'm going to show my ignorance here, but I, I do that a lot, so I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Um, so, for the production side of things, you're finding a piece of land that presumably has already been used to drill wells mm-hmm. um, and is already producing oil. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And and so when you say you go in and you spend money to improve it, what exactly does that mean? What are, what are you doing specifically to improve output or, or potential capabilities for that land? Uh, to get very specific with it, there's uh, a common thing that happens in oil fields called tubing leaks. And a tubing leak is basically, you know, you've got a displacement pump that's displacing fluid that's pump in the well. And if there's a tubing leak, then there's going to be a lack of pressure. So whenever that pump is actually trying to pump out uh, hydrocarbons from the reservoir, it's it's got a leak in it. So it's not effectively pumping it. So just for instance, you might have a well that can do 10 barrels a day. Until you fix that tubing leak, it might make two barrels a day. And that might be a ten dollars or $15,000 fix. And 10 barrels a day right now makes about $30,000 a month. So you can see how fast your return on investment is. But uh, if you've got somebody that hasn't done that in a while and they're just making the two barrels a day, you know, you don't sell a load of oil till you get to 150 barrels a day. So they might only make 15000 every two or three months. And they might be strapped for capital, have a lot of bills, whatever have you. They're just not doing something as simple as that that could reestablish quite a bit of production. Another thing is, you know, if you don't have the money for a good chemical program, there's a lot of uh, different corrosives in wells and you've got to get them out of there. Uh, could be another two to 10 barrel a day scenario. Uh, you do that across a field of 20 wells, you've really got some substantial production. So uh, when you find those opportunities, you're probably picking them up for a steal. And with a little bit of capital infusion, a little bit of work and expertise, uh, it's a, it's a huge value add play. How do you identify opportunities like that? Well, I mean, for me, I take just about every phone call that uh, comes my way. Uh, most of the time, it's that I'm just, I'm just a known buyer. They know they can come and I'll uh, close, give them very little hassle. Uh, and I'll do a lot of the legwork to evaluate a field myself. So, you know, they make a phone call. Uh, people from my company come out. We inspect the whole field and we try to identify these opportunities. So, uh, so many times buyers or private equity backed or 
whatever have you, and they want all the data provided to them, or they won't even give it the time of day or look for it, or look around and uh, try to find these themselves. So they miss out on all the good ones because if somebody's keeping great records and they have all the data readily available for you, they probably aren't the guy that's mismanaging his field. So you've got to get out there and do it yourself. And so few people nowadays are doing it that it's, it's quite a bit, it's everywhere really. And I'm having no problem on deal flow uh, just because I'm willing to get out there and do the work. So on the production side, okay, I think I, I got this now. So on the production side, you're finding basically an existing business. It's not just a piece of land. It's a piece of land where somebody's already validated that that they can extract whatever it is, oil or natural gas or whatever it is from that land. They've been extracting it, but for some reason, they're just doing it suboptimally or um, they're, they're just not making the highest and best use of the land. You go in, you take over the land and you take over the equipment as well. Um, or do you provide your own equipment? Yeah, so specifically the wells, um, it's nice when there's nice new and good working equipment, uh, but most of the time there's not. So in some cases we provide our own or buy new, and other cases, you know, there's um, there's plenty already there, and it just could be mismanagement. Uh, Labor has been really hard to find over the last few years, so people just throw their hands up on trying to get stuff done. So many people try to manage these fields from a distance. Uh, and if you're not on the ground, you're not speaking with the local people in the industry, you're probably not going to find vendors that are wanting to work with you just because they don't know you. You're out of touch. Uh, there's guys that they can sit and have coffee with that they'd much rather do work for. Um, so what will happen is they'll just throw up their hands because they might want to do the work. They can't get the vendors out there. So they're sitting there going, okay, well, I know I'm losing all this money, uh, you know, and I'll get a phone call from a, someone that's re related to or friends with them somehow. And they're like, hey, Grant, my friend's got this 20 barrel a day property. He said, just get him out of it. Will you pay for it? And I'm getting in my truck or somebody in my company is and going and checking out the field and deciding what kind of offer we'd want to make on it. You know, and then when I do that, we set up uh, a plan to rework the field. Uh, get quotes on all the work that we need done, uh, plan out a budget, and then I offer it to my partners and and we split up the risk and revenue. Got it. Okay. So that's the production side of things. Got it. Basically, uh, for all of our, our uh, we have a lot of uh, real estate investors out there. It's kind of like the the value add strategy in, in, in real estate um, where you're taking something that's just not generating the income it should be in gener generating and, and you're you're renovating it and, and and selling it at a at a higher price or just taking advantage of, of the cash flow then on the drilling side let's talk about that for a second on the drilling side you're basically going in you're finding new fields that have yet to be validated or verified mm -hmm. yeah and i mean so many times i guess on that so there's a there's several different ways you can come up with a completely new concept and you can back it up with science and data and then get out there and try a new concept. And I mean, that's where legends are made. You know, you get out there and no one's tried it, but it, you've got a, a great thesis on why you think it'll work and you drill it and hey, everyone does really well. And or there's uh, you're developing older fields. So let's say a field was drilled in the 60s or 70s and it wasn't fully developed and it produced till the mid 90s and then it was plugged out. Well, you know you're in an oil field. You're just not buying production. So you're going in there to drill new wells. 
And I mean, it's one of the more interesting and uh, highly beneficial tax benefits out there is, you know, if you drill a million dollar well and you've got a $3 million income, well, you're only taxed on $2 million now. You just wrote off 100% of that investment. So uh, getting a deferred taxes is uh, another huge benefit to drilling deals. So you kind of look at that as like a compound on your return. Um, but yeah, a lot of times we're we're doing a lot of copycatting as far as um, what we pick to drill. So we'll go into areas and we really, we study operators. Who's out there making good wells? What do those wells cost? What are the economics on that? And then how hard is it to get leases within that same area and do the exact same thing? So we remove a lot of risk by doing that. Um, obviously, we don't just go into it blind because someone else is doing it. But if they're doing it and making it work, it kind of proves the science that we're looking at on our end is actually correct. So I, it reduces our uh, risk quite a bit as well. So you know, there's so much comfort in buying a producing field because you know exactly what it's producing today. You know what you can do to improve production. Uh, on a drilling deal, it's, there's a lot less certainty. And, you know, you can drill five wells in a field. They're all going to produce different, uh, even all being successful. Now, they're statistical. They act a lot alike because it's the same depth, formation, region, um, and maybe even specifically field. But they're just all a little bit different, so there's a little more uncertainty whenever it comes to drilling. But uh, there's so much out there as far as technology and data these days um, that help you reduce the risk. And I mean, we're still drilling wells the same way we were in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But the availability of data and the softwares that can mine that data, it really helps you zero in on where you want to drill, what you want to drill, and what you can expect by drilling that well as far as production and cash flow and returns. Love that. So what are the exit strategies on these two sides of the business? So on the production side and, and the drilling side, are you holding these these properties, this, this land for a long period of time? Are you improving it and reselling it? And on the drilling side, um, if you do uh, find that you can extract, um, are you just holding it long-term for cash flow or are you reselling it uh, for an immediate profit? Well, it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis, so there's different exit strategies. I mean, if you go in and you prove this new concept and, and you kind of go for gold and, and you're successful, the hype around a new discovery, you probably would want to sell it pretty quick uh, while everyone's talking about it and while it's turning heads, uh, just because the, the speculative value of continuing what you just proved to work uh, is so great that it, it is probably greater than uh, sitting on it, holding it, and developing it yourself. Just from a time value of money standpoint, you've got some of these bigger funds and a lot of times even public companies that they're not out there making the discoveries. They're out there buying someone else's discovery and then developing it so they can just add reserves to the books. I mean, if you prove it work, a uh, new strategy works in say three or four wells and it takes 40 acres, let's just say per well, and you have 4,000 acres, they're going to book all those reserves and pay you very well for it and maybe never even drill another well. And that's where guys really just get to quit. I mean, uh, if you just Google uh, Treadstone buyout, Wild Horse buyout, you've got guys that have sunk $20, $30 million into plays that are pushing a half a B or a full B or more exits on some of these things just because they proved a concept. So really, the, it's such a huge arbitrage. 
uh, whenever you try to develop a new idea. So maybe that's more on the risky side, but it's one of those deals that you only have to be right once. Um, then on our production deals, let's say we get a field that's making 20 barrels a day. Uh, in today's market, that's trading for about uh, 60,000 per flowing barrel. So for every 10 barrels, you're talking about 600,000. So you might buy that property for $1.2 million. And or depending on the expenses, you might pay a 36 month cash flow multiple. So whatever it's averaged for the last six months in cash flow, multiply that by 36. That's about the going rate for it. So if somebody's hurting and you can buy that a little bit cheaper, you could turn around and sell it the next day and, and make your money then. But if there's upside and you can get that field to 40 or 50 barrels a day, I mean, you do the math there, you might be looking at uh, close to five, six million dollar exit. And, you know, if you can do that inside of a year, uh, you've got the cash flow while you hold it. You potentially even have the tax benefits because just like you get to write off the drilling costs, you get to write off the improvement costs. So if you have like a $2 million fund, you spend a million on the acquisition, a million on the improvements, you write off a million, you're, you know, you're kind of however you want to look at your basis into it for a million. And you might improve the value of uh, that field by three or four times. And then do you want to sell it or do you want to hold it? That depends on the market. Um, and most of the time you, you would exit because you know, you can replicate it. It's when you can't replicate your success that you don't exit, uh, because then you're back to the drawing board with, uh, you know, not much material to draw on. You mentioned a lot about the risks you taught, you had a quote where you said that you only have to hit once, um, in terms of when you go about it through the discovery process, mm -hmm. what are some other risks associated with? with this investment strategy? Uh, when it comes to drilling, there are mechanical factors when you drill a well that, that can surprise you uh, or catch you off guard if you're in an unknown area. Most of the time you can mitigate the risk in more developed areas, even uh, more so today because you know it's just common knowledge for certain areas. Like when you're drilling, there's a thing called losing circulation and that's kind of like you hit a soft spot or a void. And actually the fluids that keep the walls of the wellbore from caving in and or keep the bit lubricated, those actually go off into a void and you lose circulation. But if people have been drilling in that area, it's known that say at 3,000 out of the 10,000 feet you're drilling, you need to plan for some lost circulation. Well, if you know going into it, then you're not going to lose your well. Uh, another thing is getting a good cement job where you're cementing the walls of the wellbore and cementing your pipe in place downhole. A cement jobs, uh, some things are something that some operators have trouble with. Uh, it can happen to anybody, but most of the time, it, you know, you're either good or you're not. Um, those are some mechanical risks. So really, you've got that. And then it's a commodity-based business. So uh, if you go into something, say oil's at $100 now, but we're going to run our economics at $70 just to kind of be safe. It could go to 120 but more times than not, it's probably going to go down. So you plan uh, to recover your resources and sell them at an average of $70 a barrel. You could wake up tomorrow and it's 50 You know, that's, that's a risk. But I think we've got a really strong demand right now. There's not a lot of... Uh, big money going into exploration. So we've probably got another two year run here before we start getting back into what, what we were used to several years ago. And that's like a 50 to $65 oil environment. 
Um, but really, uh, mechanical, geological, and commodity. Uh, a lot of the geological can be mitigated. Tons of, I mean, mechanical, it's it's there, but it's, it's very, very low. Uh, a lot of it is just the pricing base. So, you know, if, if something doesn't work at 50 or $60 a barrel, even though we're sitting here at 100 and probably will be for a couple of years, you know, you probably shouldn't consider drilling it only because we're so high that the economics work today, but they might not tomorrow. Yeah, that makes sense. So for our listeners that may be interested in investing in this space and may want to talk to you about investing in, in a dealer or more that you have, um, do you have, can you tell us a little bit about the investments that um, either you have available now or you typically have available? How do you typically structure? Let's start there. How do you typically structure your investments? Um, do you, are, are these uh, 506B or 506C deals? Are they uh, joint venture agreements? What's what's the structure of, of your of your investments typically look like? Uh, so it's going to be a direct participation. So you own direct working interest in the well, which gives you a uh, little bit more rights than if you were to just uh, do a private placement where you're subscribing to a revenue share. Uh, I try to warn people away from just uh, doing those direct partic- or not the direct participation, but the private pl- placements only because you really are just along for the ride. You don't really have a voice and stuff like that. But um, if you're going to do a project where you're not managing it, but say my company and, and its followers want to do a venture with someone else, then on something like that, you would set up a joint venture. But uh, I'd say every one of my deals for the last couple of years have been direct participation. And, you know, that's so you can benefit uh, from all the tax benefits. Um, you know, so you're, you're the same level of interest owner I am. I'm just the one turning the wrenches and keeping up with the accounting and stuff. So, um, yeah, direct participation is the structure we use. Most of our investments, they're going to have a minimum of around $25,000. I rarely turn someone away that comes in with a smaller amount that just wants to see what it's like because those are usually the guys that start at, let's call it 15, and then every deal after that, it's 100 or more. So it's hard for me to turn away someone that just doesn't know and just wants to get a feel for the process and go through it once. But 25000 is about the minimum investment that we look to have. Got it. And so 25,000 is the minimum. What's a typical deal size? So how many how many partners would you typically have uh, if they're coming in at 25 or $50,000? Uh, so most of our deal sizes are not much lower than $2 million. Some of them range on up to 15 or 20. But I've got certain bigger partners that will take two, three, four, five million dollars depending on if it's a drilling or a production deal. Um, production deals, obviously, they, they take quite a bit. Uh, drilling deals, you know, a well only costs so much. Those are more of the $2 million kind of thing. So, and typically that's a three or four well venture. Uh, so various, uh, numbers of partners. I mean, I could have four partners on a deal, or like I said, there's, uh, real estate groups that, um, are wanting entire deals to themselves where I only have one partner and then they offer it to their guys. And then I'll inform my, my guys that, Hey, if you did want to participate, just go through here. Um, but you know, I'd say anywhere between like 20 and 40 for the most part is about, is about average. Where are these located? I know I think you're located in Mm -hmm. Fort Worth. Um, are they primarily in Texas or where are these located? Uh, We're pretty well spread out. So I would say half is in Texas, uh, mostly East Texas through South Texas. 
Uh, we've got a field in Oklahoma. We have about five fields in Kansas. We have about three fields in Kentucky, one in Illinois, and then quite a large one in Louisiana. So I'd probably be in Wyoming if it wasn't so far away. Uh, great, great opportunities there too. Uh, so we're, we're pretty spread out. And so in terms of, I, I imagine it's different for uh, production versus drilling, um, but what is the typical hold time frame for the investment? Uh, I'd say five to 20 years. Um, five is going to be kind of our, our shorter window. Uh, we've had stuff we've only held for seven, eight months because, you know, someone just walked in with an offer we couldn't refuse. But most of the time we're planning to hold something for five years, get through um, the current cycle, it's a little bit different now that we're at $100 oil, but when you're at $50 oil, you're kind of waiting on 60 or 70 to sell out. And the second it did, you put the asset on the market and you had a buyer. Um, but now that we're at $100 a barrel, I'm probably looking at more of like that five-year uh, time span because, you know, you're going to have to execute on your strategy. You're going to have to benefit from the work you do and the cash flow. Uh, you're probably going to see a few dips, and then on our way back up, we'll we will have made our money, and we'll be looking to exit and try to do it all over again. Now, on our 20-year holds, you know, when we drill a lot of these, when we're doing these development wells, a lot of the things we're focused on now are are wells that aren't here today and gone tomorrow. So many people will drill wells, and it's like, uh, especially in the the horizontal shale world, it's like shaking up a coke can and stabbing it with a pen. They, um, they fizzle out real fast, but a lot of the stuff we're focused on is going to be um, long-term production. So uh, it, so many of our guys want a, want a very boring investment. They want like a good investment's a boring investment. They want to try to see their capital back in a year, and then they just want to know that that well is going to keep on giving to them. So that's the only reason I kind of, I, I do the best job I can. I listen to my partners. I try to see what it is they're interested in and what they want to do more of. And then I act accordingly and try to uh, continue to provide those kind of opportunities. And lately, everyone's wanted to do as low a risk drilling as they can, because you still have higher cash flow than a production deal. And then they just want to know that it's going to be steady, that they can just count on that check every month. With respect to the returns, obviously, you have two different strategies of holds, so I'm sure they vary. What does the cash flow look like on both? You know, let's take both extremes, a five-year versus a 20-year hold. Um, so the cash flow and then the average return over the life of the hold. Uh, okay. So like on a on our production deal that we um, most recently did, uh, we're about three months into that one. And we bought it. And at the price we paid for it with the budget we set out, uh, it was returning about 24% a year. We've been out in the field working on it for the last 90 days. I think the last the last revenue check, uh, which will make the fourth one, just went out. Uh, what was that? Monday, and now we're at a forty one percent return. So um, automatically, I can I can sell that property for about fifty percent more than we paid for it, and then just in four revenue checks, which are sent out monthly, we're already sitting at about a seventeen percent return. So like that one, I'm probably gonna be able to get it into that. 55 to 65% a year uh, return range. And then that'll probably take place within the next 90 days. I mean, at that point, we'll be sitting at about a 30% return and we can automatically sell it for twice of our basis. So that's going to be hard not to sell 
just because you can do all that within in a year. I mean, I want to hold it. It's going to be there another 20 years. We can sit and cash flow till the cows come home. But it looks good on the resume, you know, to do that inside of one year. So it's going to be hard not to. And then we're closing on another one just like it on the 15th. Uh, that one's 85 barrels a day. I think we'll be somewhere in that 180 to 200 range uh, by March. And that's going to be another one. It's going to be hard not to sell it, but you're sitting there going, it looks really good on paper to keep cash flowing it too. So I, I just have such a battle trying to figure out what's the better way to go about it. Awesome. You mentioned tax benefits earlier. Um, what are the typical tax benefits if, if let's say, I invested $100,000? How much could I expect back on a typical deal? Or maybe there is no typical um, in terms of depreciation or tax benefits. Uh, so what you do is, say you put the 100000 into a drilling deal, about 80% of that's going to be considered an intangible drilling cost. That's everything from the leases to the geology uh, so the rig time, uh, all the salaries, wages, dirt work, rentals, uh, basically anything you can't pull off the well and salvage, uh, that's going to go on your uh, Schedule C form. And then further down on your Schedule C form is where you do some bonus depreciation on the remaining 20%. So like say you made a million dollars this year and you put a hundred grand into that project, your taxable income is now 900 grand. So definitely not tax advice, but... Uh, all you have to do is Google it. <laughs> now on a drilling deal or a production deal, if you were to do that same hundred grand in it and 30% of that hundred grand is going to the uh, improvement budget, then you're going to write off 30,000 of that hundred grand. The rest of it, it you just can't because you're buying a cash flowing asset. So it's just, uh, just different in that aspect. So one, you write it all off. The other one, you write a portion of it off. Uh, but another cool tax benefit is all the cash flow you get from the wells is 15% uh, non-tax, and that's because you get a 15% depletion allowance. So you're always uh, pulling oil out of your reservoir, and you can you can actually write 15% of that income off, uh, and they just label that a depletion allowance. So that's another um, double whammy. Now you also get the passive losses like you would in real estate. So you know all your electricity costs, your fuel costs. Uh, the guy that goes and checks on the wells every day, uh, all that, you know, that's your gross first net. So that's that's another benefit as well. So now we're going to shift gears a little bit. We ask all of our guests the same three questions and we are about to ask them to you. So are you ready for these? Yes, ma'am. I don't know if you can be ready, but hopefully you're ready. Um, so the first question is, what new thing have you recently invested in outside of oil and gas um, or currently researching? Uh, honestly, Bitcoin. So uh, I know it's taken a huge dive lately. I've just got so many of my personal investors, friends, family. Uh, everyone is so gung-ho about it that I really don't think it's going away I don't think it dips much more. And if it just recovers to half of its prior level, uh, it's going to be a great investment. So that was just one I really jumped into uh, head first uh, when you saw this most recent dip. Awesome. So what current legislation or economic situation do you think poses the biggest threat to, uh, to, to the oil and gas industry right now? Um, economic situation, I'd say if there's like another resurgence in COVID, I'm not super worried about uh, a recession. Uh, people still have to travel. Um, we're 
kind of looking at one more here in the states than other places. Uh, inflation and stuff it's not it's not really happening in places outside of the United States. So I'm not super worried about uh, a recession or anything like that. As far as legislation, uh, nothing there either. We're not really drilling on any federal lands, uh, so we don't aren't going to be held up on our permitting. We're not going to have any new regulation. Um, there's not really any concern there. So uh, really, I guess an, another huge COVID outbreak could, could really slow things down enough to where it's closing more than just, or slowing things down in more than just the U.S. And that's where you'd feel a, a big ripple effect that could put a, a dent in prices. I would be remiss not to ask this because if I was listening, I'd want to know your thoughts on this. What about legislation that pertains to alternative energy sources and funding for alternative energy sources? Do you feel that that poses a threat to your business? Uh, funding towards those, I mean, you'll, uh, in conversations with my private equity back colleagues, uh, a lot of them are having to implement different ESG things because they're, uh, their sponsors or whatever you'd want to refer to their private equity backers as they, they're wanting some form of an ESG component in their energy portfolio. So you've got them calling me saying, Hey, I know you can't sell gas off of this well or that well. Can we come mine Bitcoin off of it just to, just to satisfy those people? So, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of that, but doesn't really affect us. Um, and if they want to give more tax credits to electric cars also doesn't really affect us so much. A demand is not light duty transportation. Um, I, I used to be fearful of it. And then you kind of look at, you know, what they've been able to accomplish in 30 years and it still doesn't make up 10% of the mix. It doesn't even make up 5% of the mix. They're sitting around 3% throwing every possible thing they can at it. Uh, and it's just not doing anything. It's actually demands outpacing uh, their additional uh, energy that they're adding to the grid, the mix, um, all across the board. So uh, demand is outpacing uh, their best efforts. So until some kind of new technology comes along or they can start mass replicating it or it gets adopted a whole lot faster, they're not even going to make up for the the increase in demand. You know, so that. That's why I'm not fearful of it. And you've got to keep in mind that I, I look at it as like thirds because that's the way it's uh, it's been published. But um, a third of the world has is considered to have all the power they need. Uh, another third of the world has uh, limited power. And then there's a third of the world that has no power at all. And their first source of power is, is not going to be uh, high dollar renewables. They're not going to be able to follow green initiatives. So... You know, you add another, you double the current demand. Uh, shoot, we might have a four or five, six hundred dollar barrel of oil, uh, but there's just not going to be uh, a switch in in my lifetime. All right. So going back to our three questions, I sorry I derailed it for a second. But the third question is, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received or can provide to our audience? Ooh, that is a tough one because I've had, had the fortune. Don't of want to put you on the spot there or anything. Right. Well, I've, I've gotten so much good advice um, that it's hard to narrow it down. I guess triangulating opinions. Um, I know I've said that on another show or two, but uh, triangulating opinions, um, 
you can you can gain a lot by uh, drawing from two people that are smarter than you and trying to figure out where the middle is, or uh, when you can compare and contrast those two opinions, it'll it'll let you know which one's actually better than the other. So um, yeah, it, it it'd be between. It's probably that's probably the best advice I've been given because I use it on just about everything. Love it. That's great advice. Okay, Grant, for any of our listeners out there that might want to learn more about you, learn more about your company, or learn more about the investments that you have to offer, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, Social media, website, email. Um, I guess if you provide the uh, links, then it should take them directly to the website. They can fill out a request. I'll give them a call. Somebody in the company will give them a call. Uh, It's not hard to find me. We have all channels that we know of. Uh, up and running and available to people. Perfect. Well, we will have the links to uh, to you and your company on our sh- in our show notes. Um, and just real quick, Norwood Norwood Energy Corp. What is the the website? Real quick for those that don't want to look it up. Yeah, NorwoodEnergyCorp.com. Uh, so, yeah, just www. Perfect. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Grant, for being on our show. If you have enjoyed listening to Grant, make sure that you like and subscribe to our show, both on your favorite podcast platform, as well as YouTube, too. So we are on YouTube. You can view this whole show and so many more episodes there. Um, Thank you again to our entire audience for listening. Thank you, Grant, for providing such incredible content. We hope this episode helped you continue your journey of having your money work hard for you.